Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Catholicism Rocks show. My name is William Hemsworth, partner and director over at Catholicism Rocks. Please follow our website. Check it out, catholicismrocks.com. Today, my friends, let's talk about the Eucharist. Is it the body and blood of Christ, or is it just a symbol, as our Protestant friends would have us believe? Well, let's discuss that. Let's dive deep, because this is a big dividing line between us Catholics and our Protestant friends. As Catholics, we hold that a miracle takes place and the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ. And so many Protestants look at the elements as a symbol, uh, a memorial meal of sorts for us to remember what Christ did at the Last Supper. So if the Catholic Church is correct, then Protestants are missing a crucial aspect of worship. If Protestants are right, then Catholics are guilty of the sin of idolatry. So that is really what's at stake here. So that's what I want to do today on today's program is look at the Eucharist in detail. We're going to look at scripture. We're going to look at what the catechism says. And we're going to look at the writings of the early church fathers, church councils. And we're going to look at some Eucharistic controversies as well. And my friends, I think by the end of it, we can say that we're confident. We're going to shatter the myth that some Protestants have that the Catholic Church didn't start believing in the real presence until the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. We'll not only show that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, that the real presence of Christ is in the Eucharist, but we'll also show that it's a constant teaching of the Church since the time of the Apostles. So what is the Eucharist exactly? So when the liturgy of the Eucharist is happening, every Christian, regardless of denominational affiliation, now granted, Catholics are not a denomination, we are the original Christians, but every Christian will recognize the words spoken by the priest because the words are scriptural and can be found in many places. One such place is Luke twenty-two nineteen through 20, which says, Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So the word Eucharist comes from the Greek word Eucharista, or Eucharista, which means thanksgiving. The Catholic Church states that the bread and wine present on the altar become the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is our participation in worship that is happening in heaven and our participation in the heavenly banquet on earth. And the Catechism says this in paragraph 1324, quote, The Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. It contains Christ himself, and it is his, it's his efficacious sign to be with us until the end of time and allows us to maintain unity with his people and the church. So like I said a moment ago, as Catholics, we believe that a miracle takes place when the bread and wine are consecrated. Within the liturgy of the Eucharist, this takes place in a section titled, The Institution Narrative and Consecration. In this institution narrative, the priest says the words uttered by Christ on that fateful night in the upper room. Just as Christ gave himself under the species of bread and wine, the priest does the same in the liturgy of the Eucharist when he acts in persona Christi, or in the person of Christ. 
This is what the USCCB says, and that's the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. They say, quote, That sacrifice is effected, which Christ himself instituted during the Last Supper, when he offered his body and blood under the species of bread and wine, gave them to the apostles to eat and drink, and leaving with the latter the command to perpetuate this same mystery, end quote. And so that quotation that I just gave makes mention of the body and blood of Christ being offered under the species of bread and wine. The church has always taught this. But thanks to some Eucharistic controversies that were becoming prevalent, the church had to formally define this miraculous change. So at the Fourth Lateran Council, the church formally defined this with the word known as transubstantiation. And this became a dogma and a definitive teaching that must be believed. Transubstantiation is the process by which the substance of the bread and wine vanishes in a way that makes room for the body and blood of Christ. And when this happens, the appearance of bread and wine remains. Since the appearance of the bread and wine remain, this allows us to consume the sacrament. So, really, in short, the substance of the material has changed, but the appearance stays the same. This understanding grew over the years as Aristotelian language became more mainstream and it was being understood in a deeper way. Thomas Aquinas, in his awesome work, the Summa Theologica, started to define these terms, even if the official word of transubstantiation had not yet been defined. This is what Aquinas writes in regard to this change in the elements. He says, quote, the presence of Christ's true body and blood in this sacrament cannot be detected by sense nor understanding, but by faith alone, which rests upon divine authority. So, he shows us his flesh, though it may be in an invisible manner, as a way to strengthen us for the journey of life and to perfect us in faith. Now, though the word transubstantiation did not come about until 1215 at the Fourth Lateran Council, that does not mean that the church started teaching it then. Some Protestants believe that, but history shows another story. Church history shows that from the time of the apostles until the ninth century, that the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist was unchallenged. And I'm talking about those within the church. Obviously, the Gnostics were not Christians, and they denied that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, as St. Ignatius of Antioch tells us in the year 110. So let's look at the Bible. Some claim that the doctrine of the Eucharist is not found in Scripture. That's just incorrect. This is an indication of one reading through a denominational lens or from their tradition. So the Last Supper narratives all describe Jesus saying, This is my body. This is my blood. He says so in Matthew 26, 17-30, Mark 14, 12-25, Luke 22, 7-20, and John 13, 1-30. St. Paul also writes about the, blood, the body and blood of Christ in the breaking of bread in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16-17, and 1 Corinthians 11, 23-29. But perhaps the strongest evidence from Scripture comes from Christ himself in John chapter 6, 22-59, which is known as the Bread of Life Discourse, in this discourse, Christ actually loses followers because he is speaking literally about his body and blood. So to understand these verses fully, we must look at some Old Testament passages because these New Testament verses employ a theological term known as typology. 
Now, typology studies events and institutions that foreshadow something greater that's to come. In the Catholic Bible Dictionary, Dr. Scott Hahn writes this, The basis of such study is the belief that God, who providentially shapes and determines the course of human events, infuses those events with a prophetic and theological significance. So understanding typology helps us understand salvation history as something fluid and not as periods that are broken up and are independent of each other because God does not change. And the subtle clues that he gives us in the Old Testament find their final fulfillment in the pages of the New Testament. Now, with that being said, we see the beginnings of the Eucharist in the pages of the Old Testament. And there are two items, and there are more, but there are two main ones that I want to go over here. Those two things are the bread of the presence in the temple and the manna in the desert. So the story of the manna in the desert takes place in the book of Exodus. Moses, through the grace of God, led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Now, though they were in bondage in Egypt, they ate pretty well. Okay, they they were provided for in that regard. So they roamed through the desert and they began to complain about how much better off they were in Egypt. And in Exodus 16, verse 2, we read, quote, The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Quote. They were afraid, and they didn't know where their next meal was coming from because it had always been provided for them in Egypt. Moses took their concerns before the Lord, and the Lord responds. The text says, here's what Moses says in Exodus what God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. End quote. This miraculous bread was brought down from heaven every morning, and the Israelites were to pick as much as they needed for the day. This is a foreshadowing of what Christ says in the Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6. In that discourse, Jesus says that he is the true manna that will come down from heaven. Now, the Bread of Life discourse takes up most of John 6. But for purposes of time, I just want to look at a few verses. So in John chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus tells the Jews that Moses was not the one that gave the bread from heaven, but the Father gives them true, be- true bread from heaven. Jesus is using present tense verbs and not past tense as if he were simply discussing something that Moses did. The Jews here were longing for the bread that Jesus describes, and he shifts the conversation from the manna that gave the Israelites life to the true bread. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 35, quote, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In John six forty one. The Jews are complaining to Jesus because he said that he is the bread of life. When Jesus is encountering the Jews, you see, the Jews weren't understanding. When Jesus is encountered, the Jews just could not understand that they could be feeding on the living God. Both John 6.41 and Exodus 16.2 state that the Jews started complaining They both started complaining over something that they believed to be literal. The manna in the desert was a real event, as was Jesus saying that his flesh must be eaten. Though the Jews were complaining, just like the Israelites in the wilderness were, Jesus repeats himself. In John 6.51, Christ says, 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. My friends, it's interesting to note that the Jews not only complained, but they became angry, indignant. They asked themselves how Christ could give his flesh to eat. See, this leads to a very important question that's at the heart of this show today. If our Lord were speaking metaphorically, why would the Jews take him literally? The question they asked among themselves is literal in nature. Jesus understood their confusion and raised the ante once again. In fact, with his next phrase, he would erase all doubt and his audience would know exactly what he meant. In John 6.53, Jesus says, quote, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. In this verse, Jesus uses a different Greek verb for the word eat. The verb used by Christ is the Greek word trogo, and it means to gnaw, munch, crunch. In the Greek language, this word is never meant as a literary metaphor. It's always used in a literal fashion. At this saying, many of those who were following Jesus left. They left because they knew what he meant, and that meaning was literal. He then turned to his disciples in John 6.61 and asked if they were offended and wanted to leave. See, many will say that Jesus also said that he was a door and a vine, and yes, he did say those things. However, he never willingly lost followers over those statements. The comparison between Exodus 16 and John 6 shows that manna was a prefiguration of the Eucharist. And Pope Benedict XVI, he says this about this. The mystery of the Eucharist reveals the true manna, the true bread of heaven. It is Christ, Logos, made flesh, who gave himself up for us in the Paschal mystery. So, the bread of the presence, that's also a foreshadowing of the Eucharist in the Old Testament. And according to Exodus 25.30, this bread was to be continually before the Lord. This bread stood as a reminder to all who saw it that God was continually present. The bread was placed on a golden table outside of the Holy of Holies, and every Sabbath, new bread would be placed and priests would eat the old. Four times per year, on major feast days, the bread of the presence was shown to the people to remind them that God was with them. The bread of the presence reaches its fulfillment in Christ, who instituted it in the Eucharistic celebration, because it is Christ who sustains our spiritual life. The connection between the bread of the presence is not lost with our Protestant friends. In fact, Protestant biblical scholar Paul Carlin says this in his commentary, quote, The specially made bread that lay on an ornate table in the holy place in the tabernacle pictures Christ as the one who sustains spiritual life. The bread consisted of 12 loaves for the 12 tribes of Israel, In the New Covenant, Jesus has 12 disciples to represent the same. As the priest in the Old Testament lifted the bread to show the people that God was with them, Jesus does the same at the Last Supper. Using the the principles of typology here, and of course what Jesus said in John chapter 6, we see Jesus in his role as high priest, offer himself to be eaten by his disciples. And we do this every day in the celebration of the Eucharist at Holy Mass. So, so far, we've looked at two Old Testament preludes to the Eucharist. But what about the New Testament? 
For this, let's go look at the Last Supper narratives. But let's specifically look at the Gospel of Matthew. The sequence of events is familiar as Jesus takes the bread and says in Matthew 26, 26, he says, take, eat, this is my body. The word is, is a crucial component of this study today. The Greek word used is esti, which is a third person singular verb, which means to be. What's even more interesting as far as this word is concerned is its origins. The word esti has its root in the present infinitive Greek verb, ienai, to be, which means to be, to exist, to be present. In Matthew 26, 27, Jesus then states, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So a study of the Greek language is a good starting point. But the real connection with the Eucharist is the Passover. The Gospels are pretty clear and state that and state that Jesus and the disciples gathered to celebrate the Passover. The Passover meal was done to remember the Exodus event, and it really was a sacrificial meal in its own right. Prior to Passover, a lamb would be slaughtered, and the whole lamb had to be consumed. The Passover was a community feast, and it parallels the gathering that we see with Jesus and his disciples. During the meal, the head of the table would make comments, and it was, it was very ritualistic in nature. There was a formula that was followed. Jesus did not follow the prescribed formula. And he, instead, he said the words mentioned above in Matthew 26, 26 through 27. He also commanded the disciples to follow his lead and to do this act in the future. Now, there are a couple more ways in which the Last Supper deviates from the traditional Passover meal. Conspicuous in its absence is the roasted lamb. This is important. Don't lose sight of this. Because Jesus took the place of the Passover lamb. When Christ said the words of institution, the bread and wine that were present became his body, which was the sacrifice of the new covenant given for the sins of the world. To understand the remembrance in this way makes the Eucharist not only a representation of the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ, but also a foretaste of the kingdom to come. Now, over the past few minutes, we've looked at Scripture to show that Jesus was being literal and that Christ is the Paschal Lamb that died for the sins of the world and that He is present in the Eucharist. So how about the earliest Christians? What did they believe? Now, many church fathers talk about this, and I can go on all day, but I'm just, I'm just going to look at four. We're going to look at St. Ignatius of Antioch, who lived approximately from 35 to... 110 AD. We'll look at St. Justin Martyr, who lived from 100 to 165. St. Irenaeus, who lived from 130 to 202. And then St. Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430. This is, just, like I said, this is just a super, super small sampling here. But go search it up for yourself. St. Ignatius of Antioch is an individual who has several distinctions in church history. He learned the faith directly from St. John but he was also the second bishop of Antioch after St. Peter. While he was being led to Rome for his martyrdom, he wrote seven letters to a series of Christian communities. At the time he wrote these letters, there was a heresy known as docetism that was gaining steam. This error, this very dangerous error, taught that Jesus was not really a human, 
and what people saw only seemed to be human. In many ways, it was similar to Gnosticism in its view of who Jesus was. Now, St. Ignatius warned against this false teaching in a very, very strong manner. One of the ways he refuted this teaching was in the Eucharist. In his letter to the Smyrnians, St. Ignatius writes, quote, They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer, because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins, and which the Father of his goodness raised up again. To defend the Orthodox teaching of who Christ is, he states that the Eucharist is the body of Christ who suffers for our sins. My friends, if it was just a symbol, then this teaching on the Eucharist would have meant nothing to combat the Docetic heresy. In his letter to the Philadelphians, he writes about the importance of unity. He writes about the union with the bishop, avoiding schism, and how there is only one Eucharist. This is what he writes about the Eucharist. Take ye heed then to have but one Eucharist, for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, and one cup to show forth the unity of his blood, one altar, as there is one bishop along with the presbytery and deacons. You see, we see a bold claim here, a bold claim at least in today's world, that there is one true church, and that the Eucharist is the center of its sacramental life. St. Ignatius also sees the Eucharist as not only the body and blood of Christ, but as a connection to him. In addition to being the true body and blood of Christ, the Eucharist is a source of unity and strength to continue the journey, the Christian journey. For St. Ignatius, the grace given through, through God in the Eucharist helped him to proceed to his martyrdom. The sacramental worldview here involves seeing God work through ordinary things, and through his grace, the Eucharist becomes what Christ says it is and helps us through life. Another church father that was very influential for me in my own conversion is St. Justin Martyr. He was a philosopher by trade and the first of the layman apologists. He was not a priest. He wasn't a deacon. He was just an everyday Catholic like you and I. In his first apology, he writes to the emperor to defend Christianity from misconception, misconceptions that were spreading in the Roman Empire. In this apology, he lays out the order of mass in striking detail and addresses the charge of cannibalism that was levied against Christians. He states that no one can receive the Eucharist unless they believe that the church teaches and only after baptism. This is what he says. He says, For not as common bread and common drink do we receive these, but in like manner as Jesus Christ our Savior, having been made flesh by the word of God, had both flesh and blood for our salvation. So likewise, have we been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his word, and from which our blood and flesh by transmutation are nourished, is the flesh and blood that, of that Jesus who was made flesh. Now, the charge of cannibalism was a serious offense in the Roman Empire, and St. Justin clarifies what the Eucharist is to eliminate doubt. However, he still says that it is the flesh and blood of Jesus. So, one of the errors, the heresies that were gaining steam in the early church, we talked about docetism a minute ago, is its evil cousin Gnosticism. And St. Irenaeus of Lyon, well, he was very concerned about this heresy. Um, and he wrote a work that I recommend everyone read. It's called Against Heresies, where he took the teachings of Gnosticism to task. The Gnostics taught that all matter was evil and that the true teaching of Christ was passed down in secret 
and salvation can only be attained by attaining this secret knowledge. Now, to fight this heresy, he said that all true churches have a rule of faith that was passed down via apostolic succession. Now, essentially, he stated that all bishops can trace their lineage to the apostles. And that's still the teaching of the church today. The Catholic Church, the bishops of the Catholic Church, can trace their lineage all the way back to the apostles. Now, another way he defended the church was in relation to the Eucharist. St. Irenaeus, he argues that Jesus was real was a real person with flesh and bones, and he gave his flesh to nourish the body and soul of his followers. This is what he says. He does not speak these words of some spiritual and invisible man, for a spirit has not bones nor flesh, but he refers to that dispensation by which the Lord became an actual man, consisting of flesh and nerves and bones, that flesh which is nourished by the cup which is his blood, and receives increase from the bread, which is his body. The last church father I want to look at today is St. Augustine. He was very familiar with the Gnostic movement because he was at one point a member of the Gnostic movement, the branch known as Manichaeism. He understood the Gnostic movement's teachings of all material uh, matter being evil. He probably had a deeper appreciation of the sacraments and, as a result, the sacramental worldview. St. Augustine was a prolific writer and homilist, and as such, he said a lot about the Eucharist. In one of his sermons, he was instructing a group that had just received the sacrament of baptism. He had promised to explain the nature of the Eucharist after they had been washed from the stain of original sin and received the seal of the Holy Spirit in confirmation. This is what he says in Sermon um, 227. He says, quote, The bread you see on the altar, having been sanctified by the word of God, is the body of Christ. The chalice, or rather, what is in the chalice, having been sanctified by the word of God, is the blood of Christ. Augustine goes on to say that our eyes see ordinary bread and wine, but what they are consecrated, but when they are consecrated, our faith obligates us to believe that they are the true body and blood of Christ. Now, he wrote a lot about the Eucharist. And from the quote I just gave you, we could deduce two things here. One, he strongly believed that the Eucharist was the literal body and blood of Christ, and it was something that must be believed. And secondly, that ordinary elements are transformed when God sanctifies them. God uses ordinary elements. He infuses his grace, and he takes material things that cause us to sin and transforms them to become a cause for our sanctification. Now, so far we've looked at sacred scripture. We've looked at four of the church fathers in regard to the Eucharist. The language used by all these great early church theologians spoke in literal terms. Now, in fact, the teaching of the Eucharist, that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, would go unchallenged within the church until the ninth century. Now, there were those outside the church, like I said, the Gnostics, who did not believe so. But within the church... And went unchallenged until the ninth century. It was then that a monk by the name of Vertramnus wrote a book titled On the Body and Blood of the Lord. And in that book, he wrote that Christ was present in the Eucharist only in a spiritual sense to the faith of the believers. And this is, real, this is kind of what John Calvin believed. In, in the view of Vertramnus, the Eucharist is a spiritual reality and not a physical one. And so by saying so, he was really the first to deny within the church again the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. 
Now, Rotramnus had a monk who was his uh, superior by the name of St. Piscasius. Now, Piscasius also wrote a, wrote a book titled On the Body and Blood of the Lord, and he published it before Rotramnus published his. Um, Pistachius held to the Orthodox teaching of the real presence. And for, for a time, he squashed Rotramnus's work. Um, that is until Beringer of Tours revitalized the controversy in 1050. Beringer of Tours, he was a skilled scholar, and he had real concerns about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, especially in the cases of sacrilege. So for one of the questions he wrote, he, um, he asked, you know, is it proper for Christ to pass through the digestive system? What if a mouse got into the tabernacle and ate the consecrated hosts? And Beringer of Tours also had the false assumption that all one had to do was to consume the Eucharist and one would be automatically saved. Now, if this were the case, there would be no need for faith. These were his arguments. Now, around this time, Aristotelian language was starting to be understood more and more. And this led to the this led for an opportunity for the church to clarify Eucharistic language. Now, the church works on the language at the regional council of Vercelli in 1050. It was there that the views of Berenger of Tours were condemned. He did recant, but later he fell back in his, into his error. In 1054, he signed another profession of faith in which he recanted of his error. Berenger of Tours would pass to his eternal reward in communion with the church in 1088. Now, as is often the case, the church does not formally define something at a council until a controversy arises. Now, though the error of Retramnus and Beringer of Tours were handled correctly, the error regarding the Eucharist continued with other groups such as the Waldensians, the Albigensians, and the Cathars. The Fourth Lateran Council met, and it was at this council that the word transubstantiation was used to describe what happened when the bread and wine are consecrated and does so in philosophical categories. This formal definition answered the question how the bread and wine maintain its physical appearance and taste and how they can be transformed. So, over the past several minutes, we've gone over sacred scripture. We read about man being tempted with physical matter by Satan. It was through this, this material matter that sin entered the world. And through the longing for it, that most problems in the world are present. God knows that we're physical beings and need to see things to comprehend and remember their significance. This is why he established the seven sacraments to infuse grace and help us get to heaven. This is where this is where the sacramental worldview comes into play, especially in regard to the Eucharist. At the words of consecration, the physical element of bread and wine are infused with the grace of God. In the sacrament, we're declaring unity with one another, unity with the church, and unity with Christ, because Christ is fully present in the sacrament. It is something bigger than us, and it's a reminder about his death and resurrection that redeemed all of us. We consume Christ, and he changes us from the inside out and conforms us more to his image. So yes, Christ is present in the Eucharist. That is the constant teaching of the church since apostolic times, that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. We've looked at church fathers. We've looked at scripture. Be confident in the church's teaching. 
regarding this. May God bless you all. Check out CatholicismRocks.com for a lot of great blog articles, great resources. Check out our forums where you can ask questions of us. You can ask questions of a priest anonymously if you have a question. God bless you all. Take care. When you fly from Tucson International Airport, the journey is easy from ticketing to takeoff. With affordable, convenient parking, shorter security and check-in lines, and less time wasted compared to driving to Phoenix. At TUS, air travel is as close to relaxing as it can get. Now you can fly nonstop on Alaska Airlines from TUS to Portland, Oregon, Everett, Washington, and Orange County, California. Details at flytucson.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.